Welcome to the Future of Application Security, a podcast for ambitious leaders who want to build a modern and effective AppSec program. Doing application security right is really hard. Now I'm going to help you build a better future of AppSec at your company by curating the lessons from the leaders. I'm your host, Harshal Parikh, CEO of Tromso. And without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Future of Application Security. Today, I have Jacob Selassie, Director of Product Security at Snowflake. Jacob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Jacob, before we go too far into this conversation, I know we're going to have fantastic points and topics to be discussed. Before we go too far, I would love for you to just give a little bit of introduction to the audience about what do you do, where do you work, and uh, what's your focus area at your current company? So I lead product security, actually two teams at Snowflake uh, more recently. So I lead the product security organization and regulatory expansion. I report in our product engineering organization. So under product security, we own the full security stack. So architecture, assurance, engineering, detection, response, and offensive security. Regulatory expansion helps us figure out how we use either what we're doing in security already or what we're doing in the product already, or what else we might need to build to reduce barriers or eliminate barriers for adoption in, in regulated market. I like to think a lot of it about us the language we use to talk about the great security we already do. But you know what I've come to appreciate is there's more to it than that as well. So regulatory expansion is something else we think about. As part of the bigger picture at Snowflake, we work with our partners in a very real sense. It was a very intentional choice, but we have a global security team, a corporate security team, and a product security team. And what we bring to the table is domain expertise and a product, but we come to the table to secure Snowflake because we don't think that you can survive each just living in some kind of silo. So there's a strong and intentional interdependence and in virtual team structure to the way the security organizations at Snowflake function. So a little bit about what we're doing or maybe the highlights. I think something that I really value is that Snowflake gives us a lot of trust. Um, we take that very seriously. You know, something that's kind of been said is if we say it's red, it's red, which sounds great, but you need to be very responsible in that case. And so then something we think a lot about is doing science and not uh, art. I think there's a lot of art in security, uh, but I think there's a lot of science which needs to be done. So what we try to really focus on is understanding exactly what we expect developers to do, what we expect security partners to do, and what we expect security engineers to do. And then we focus on creating, because we think this is what Snowflake wants from us, is to create world-class products and processes. Now, I realize that's kind of hyperbole, but you have to wake up every day and say that to achieve greatness. You have to dream about greatness. So, And think about catering to those specific audiences where they are. And I think that's not saying anything new in the industry, but I think we quadruple or however many you know multiples you want to put on top of that. Like We think that's it. It's about integrating and dissolving well. And I think one highlight of that is you know, in engineering, we don't like to talk about doing security. We like to talk about if you do engineering at Snowflake, you're doing all of the things you need to do. In any case, we think about repeatable on-rails processes for developers. We try to capitalize on what they understand. And so I guess the highlight there is what we ask a developer to do is very different than what we ask a security engineer to do. I think that developers understand the system they're building. So everything we do is to extract those artifacts from them in a structured way that is not disruptive. It's only part of what they do. And then to use those artifacts to suggest to them the security they need to do. And then to have an accountability layer set up where that can be peer-reviewed and escalated to my team if needed. But we're really trending toward 
local autonomy. It's also not a new idea, but that's that's the basic incentive loop. And to kind of wrap it up for security engineers, then what we're saying is, well, you know, Stripe per element, that's all good for developers. That assumes a lot of things about the design is already good. But when we go outside of those bounds, what we often find is security engineers need help to understand the business value and how to optimize for the business value and not to just arbitrarily optimize for security outcomes. And so then what we want to do is have a process that helps them really clearly identify what are the mission goals? What are the risks to that mission? And then how do I make sure I'm doing a good job of both the security and optimizing, you know, not over-optimizing security and compromising the mission? And finally, I think we, continuing in the theme of deep integration, we take a quantitative risk-based reporting approach when we think about our risk register you know, we calculate a, a loss expectancy for each of those and we report, you know, up to the board and the C-suite using those metrics. But having that integrated down to what every security engineer does on a day-to-day basis is something else we focus a lot on because we don't think there should be too much, you know, all of those things should be tightly coupled. So that's a bit about us and what we're doing at Snowflake. That's pretty awesome. That's a pretty extensive scope, not just in terms of what are the things you do within product security, but also what are the areas that are sort of like compliance and, you know, helping the business explore different regulatory markets and what have you from a product security perspective. That's a pretty diverse group of functions within the team. More fundamental question, I guess, how do you define product security or why do you use the term? Yeah, it's funny. And this is something I have to clarify more or less. And I'm sort of, I'm always interested to hear which way people fall on it. But right, I always thought of something product security different than what I'm going to explain to you. But it's Snowflake. We, for better or worse, are a product company. And part of our growing up was to acknowledge that we had to actually invest more in the corporate side of things and that there was a difference and that each organization needed to have some sense of autonomy and mastery of its own fate. And so anyway, when we think about what are the two things that Snowflake does, it's like you're the product, the product engineering and everything related to the Snowflake service. That's what we call product. And then corpus, everything that is not, everything that sits outside of the Snowflake service. So... It is more akin to an AppSec team, but it's the AppSec team, the CloudSec team, it's the InfoSec team, right? But when you start to think about what do product security teams traditionally do? Well, in many cases, they're the teams who build the SSO features, let's say, or in the case of Snowflake, let's say data masking features. We have that team internally. It's called database security. So it's maybe a, a Snowflakeism in some sense, but what my team and I are responsible for is the security posture of the Snowflake service. But we're to the point in our growth now where that often means we also build the security services, you know, secure secret storage and other things, deploy those and operate them as production services ourselves uh, and provide those to the business. Yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, at the end of the day, attackers don't think about whether it's a cloud security issue or it's an application security issue, right? Right. Why should we silo ourselves into those arbitrary layers of the stack if we can think about risk from a holistic product perspective across every site? the stack that's involved, that makes more sense for the business to manage risk. So now I'm sure all of our audience is familiar with Snowflake, but in the sense of Snowflake and security, maybe you can tell a little bit about how you're seeing this whole you know data warehouse concept take shape within the world of security in general. And then we'll talk about what implications are for product security, how can product security teams use it. But let's just talk about data warehouse in general and security. Yeah or data warehouse for cybersecurity use cases? Oh, so this was one of the areas of growth I had to experience the most. My most recent background coming into Snowflake had been at a previous healthcare startup, a little bit of security, but before that was actually kernel kernel development, <laughs> BSD kernel development. So like databases was not something that I ever thought about very much at all. And so it was kind of funny to come work and do this at the database company, not to mention there's like no database top 10 either. So you just got to like figure that out, which was what made it exciting. 
So the thing that I failed to appreciate and what I saw happening a lot at Snowflake was that the threat detection teams are actually in, sorry, I don't want to refer to someone outside of the conversation, but you know, Omer. So when I joined Snowflake, Omer was and is still in the industry an advocate of the security data warehouse. And it's something I heard him talk a lot about. But as I said, my background wasn't there and I wasn't sure what that meant. Okay. But what I came to appreciate was that threat detection teams want to write alerts at scale. You want to be able to write that over a large amount of data, and you want to be able to investigate those things. And you might start to ask yourself, what are the fundamental problems with that? What am I doing today? Well, today I'm going to Splunk and I'm running search A, I'm running search B, I'm running search C and D and E and F, and I'm kind of probably copy and pasting some things off. Or maybe I'm creating a dashboard that has some views, but fundamentally I'm interacting with my questions one at a time, one data source at a time. And I'm interacting with many systems in many cases. It's not all in Splunk. I'm having to do it across multiple places. And so if I'm not doing threat detection, I don't think I know, right? And what we can all appreciate is in complex systems, like these things occur, threat actors are moving across systems, things are moving across systems. Therefore, your ability to uniformly analyze data across systems becomes either a strength or a weakness. And one of the challenges that traditional security teams, threat detection sort of in the weeds with this stuff and even traditional SOC jobs looking at alerts and things like that is I got to go to a hundred different places and it's very difficult for me to pull it together into an investigation, whether I'm trying to determine if a threat is present or whether I'm trying to do the forensic analysis on the incident response side, right? So eventually what you start to see is like, well, what is the solution? Well, you get logs, stashes, and kibanas and essentially more and more data aggregators But at the end of the day, at certain scales, the data is large enough that you start to say, well, what's the rest of the world doing? And like everyone else is, hey, like big data, I don't want to get on that hype train, but like big data is not a new problem. And I think it was more about security teams realizing that what they had was a data problem. And how do I deal with data at scale? Because it's not as though that comes for free. There's a whole other set of problems that come with dealing with data at scale. But in many cases, and it is true for Snowflake being multi-cloud as large as we are, like it is a data at scale problem and latency and sensitivity and all of those things are really important to us. So long story short, being able to put all of the data in one place and then to either seamlessly or not, depending on how you model it, join data. So if I am a threat detection engineer and I'm responding to a threat event and you know someone is taking some action and I want to understand who is that person, I want to understand what team are they on. I want to understand who are their manager, maybe some kind of trivial example like that. But just being able to trivially join the user's identity with the underlying HR data and those kinds of things so that I could easily just power dashboards that show me these things or analysis workbooks that start being able to answer all of these questions. And then furthermore, if we consider these things as a data modeling problem, I can now predict a set of analyses I'm going to want to do. As a threat detection team, I know that like I typically investigate these kinds of things and I take these kinds of steps. Guess what? You've identified the beginnings of a data model and the questions you would like it to answer on a consistent basis. And so you start to build these things out and you get better and better, right? It's more challenging to do that in a set of silos. In fact, it's impossible. So this is kind of like the fundamental value proposition for, I think, security teams dealing with the data warehouse or just however you choose to get all of your data in one place and and query it. Really, data warehouse is one way to get that done or or data lake. Yeah. And uh, one of the powers of Snowflake, and I'm a very, very, very basic user of Snowflake, but one of the powers that I know as a very unsophisticated user is that you can search massive amounts of information at very, very rapid speed. Right. And there's an abstraction between the volume of data 
versus the compute that's needed to actually search or do things Correct. with data, which is very powerful for security use cases because you might have terabytes and terabytes of data, but you might not use all of the data all the that time. Right. You don't want to pay for it. You don't want to spend resources maintaining that data, but how can you still have the power of that data and use it as and when needed and pay for that, right? So that's rare. Very different cost structure, very different model. Makes total sense for SOC and you know IR use cases, detection use cases. What about software security or product security. use cases? How do you see that concept of data warehouse being used for you know AppSec, ProtSec teams? Right. Where it's not very common to use massive volumes of data in a single place to do things. So this is where you know I learned more than anything, and it was an accident. And then as you experience the accident for longer and longer, that it becomes intention, right? So I'm going to be very transparent. We didn't set out to achieve exactly what we achieved, but we set out to achieve some other engineering goals that led to this. So I'll, I'll kind of say what I mean. One thing I did leverage coming into this was my engineering background. And because I did kernel development, you know, something I think and thought a lot about at that time was data structures, right? And that's one thing I sort of appreciated coming in. And one of the reasons that Anyway, one of the early gaps was that that I felt, and it's one of, the, one of the friends who gave me a shot at doing AppSec felt was like, what AppSec needs is this developer perspective. So anyway, one of the first things I came in and sort of observed is the comment I made to you earlier, which was, no one is storing anything about their data, and then none of this is leading to tests. Like essentially for me, what I realized is like, the code is where everything lives, and everything you write around it is what dies. Even the specs about the code, like no one will care about that. But they'll update the code and they'll probably update the tests sometimes. So if you want to be living it, you better be either code or tests, right? And so then what that sort of meant was, well, we had to really value everything. We have to structure everything. So I think kind of the first set of problems that I felt like was that, well, the data that AppSec teams deal in is unstructured. It's informal. It's often discarded security review evidence, right? Yeah. And this is really important point what you mentioned. I want to make sure we put a spotlight on this, which is if it's not a code, if it's not uh, stored as code or as a test, it's going to be lost. So what we talked about earlier is things like architecture diagrams on a whiteboard. People will right. raise it, which is what you mentioned, which is exactly what happens all the time and that knowledge is lost, which is fundamental to this topic of how do you capture things as code. Right. Or as data. Right. Or as data. So, and that's exactly what we sort of started to figure out. It's like, okay, some of these things have to exist as code or they'll never be meaningful. And some of these things have to exist as data. And if they do, and we understand certain properties about it, for example, all models, all models are imperfect. And we have to understand that, for example, a lot of this data is given to us as an upfront snapshot, which means that you have to think about entropy and do I need to refresh my view of this model? We'll get into some more of those examples. But right, you need to decide what you should keep and why, and you should make sure it's preserved and structured and repeatable. And if you want it to be close to the code and to influence the code, it probably needs to be code because the code is going to keep changing. And there's a real big question around, is there some mechanism that is going to bring anyone back to whatever it is you've said as the code moves on, right? And, and typically the way to gate that is a test breaks. And so that's sort of like a very fundamental software engineering thing we're trying to think about. So we got all this unstructured data. When we do threat modeling, it's kind of like everyone who does it does it a little bit different. So we say it's non-deterministic. And then we say, gosh, it's really hard to scale anyway. Uh, developers really are sick of explaining stuff to us and we can't possibly you know, do them all. So you got you to scale through developer-driven security. Great. So what we decided was you got to structure and store early security review evidence. You got to have an opinion on what they're asking and why we've kind of talked about that. 
So what we ended up having was a risk assessment and threat modeling process that was initially in Markdown. Why we, we chose that? Because it was human readable, but also parsable in, a more, in the most basic sense. And we started there and I'll sort of fast forward this conversation. You know, people didn't love that. They don't like drawing Markdown. They don't like doing any of those things, but we kind of figured out which data we wanted to keep and how to structure it better. And we got to the point where we said, hey, if you draw us a diagram, we can give you most everything else you need. And that's kind of all we're going to ask you to do. Like, we're going to build you a web UI. It's going to guide you through everything else. We're just going to ask you what team you're on. And we're going to kind of hold your hand through the whole process. So it evolved from a set of markdowns, deliverables that were committed to GitHub. There was a peer review process where security partners and security engineers all peer reviewed it. We met in a room and we looked at all that. So this kind of hand-drawn, hand-curated version of this, but repeatable and structured. So we figured out how to automate it. And then we automated it to a dev portal. And so what does that mean is all along, every project, every commit, every new feature that's being shipped at Snowflake is being risk assessed. And many of them are brand new, which means they're being threat modeled, which means a developer is drawing us a diagram. They're telling us things about that diagram. And, and let's say what we can view this diagram is as a graph. It is a set of nodes and edges. Quick question. When you say a diagram, is this... Yeah written like text written in a certain format that does the web UI then draws into a diagram or are you talking on actual diagram and we had a win so we used to use Dryo and then we rebuilt our own diagramming tool so there is a web-based like you go to a single painted glass after the risk assessment we've understood what you've done where now you're in the the threat modeling tool it's not so different than any other one you've seen in the sense that you draw a dfd Yep. But right. No, it is a diagramming tool. And what it actually presents to you is after you draw the diagram, we present to you the stride-based threat as suggested test cases for that particular system. And is that human done by a human or is that automated? No, that's automated. So the developer comes and draws us the diagram and we ask them to do one thing in terms of annotation. This is now where we think about it's a data model. It's a graph data model and it's a property graph data model. And one thing we used to have developers do was stride per element threat modeling. And we asked our, we said, they're not good at that. And it's not deterministic. Is there something out there that will help us do that in a repeatable and deterministic way? In fact, there is. There's a methodology called rapid threat model prototyping invented by someone else. And what this consists of is a method of scoring a diagram. If you have a data flow diagram, you can score things that are on the internet with a zero. And you can score things where data land with a nine. You can score things that are on the edge, your web service, whatever else was a one. And essentially the in between two through eight, as it gets closer to the data source, you increment the number. What I, I don't want to oversimplify that, but it actually doesn't matter too much. It's the three main axes that matter. And from that, what you can do is you can calculate probable stride threats. So in the case of stride per element, the problem is not only is stride per element not great, but let's get past that. You do this maximal explosion of threats, and then you need to force the developer to deselect lots of them. And they're not that good at that in the, in the first place. And it gets them confused because they don't know which things they should really be thinking about because you're showing them, hey, spoofing, tampering, all of this stuff. You'd like to be able to narrow that down and say, hey, only think about these couple of ones for this flow. And here's why, as a matter of fact. And so, for example, in rapid threat model prototyping, you measure the difference between two edges rather two nodes connected by an edge. And so if I have, for example, information leaving a higher trust zone and going to a lower trust zone, you could say I have an information disclosure risk because you do. 
because there's something that is more close, either close to a data sink, it either, either is a data store itself or is an intermediate processor who's returning a result who is more trusted than the person who's going to receive it. So you have to ask yourself, how will I know that a person receiving it is receiving the This is not rocket science, but it does allow you to say, don't worry about spoofing there because in that direction of the flow, it doesn't matter. So without belaboring this too much, we've now got the basis of a property graph. At a minimum, we get to know which nodes of which name are connected to each other in which specific way. As a bonus, we get to know which of them are on the internet, which of them store data, right? And in addition to that, we can now automate threat modeling. We can now store that as data in Snowflake, which we do, and we can run a SQL query that says, tell me all of the places where data flows from low to high, mark those as information disclosure. So we automate, you're now taking the structured data that the developer produces and doing threat modeling using data automated, right? It is now SQL who answers the question of which of these areas should have a, you know, a stride thread applied to it. Yeah. When we get that SQL data back, we then say, great, because this flow goes from here to here, let's say from low to high, you have this information disclosure threat between these two elements. We know the names of those elements. We complete that for the developer. And then we can, and this is the part where we we have to help them, but we say, okay, you've got this information disclosure threat. Here are the standard mitigations at Snowflake. You complete the next part of the test scenario, which tells us what the expected behavior is, give it this information disclosure threat. And so now we're saying in exchange for the diagram, we'll give you the test plan, 80% of the test plan. You fill in the rest of the details and you just squint at this thing and don't think so much about did I do stride for element correctly? Just free yourself to ask, what else could go wrong? Is there anything missing here, right? That's actually what we want the developer to think about is that 20% space, did something get missed? Rather than spending so much time thinking about, ah, stride, how do I do stride well, right? So that's sort of one thing about structuring this data, storing that data, and then powering a very common developer task using that data. The second thing that's commonly happening for most AppSec teams is we are storing vulnerability data. So we've already kind of talked about how this is threat model as a property graph, right? And threat model as relational data and threat modeling with data. And because this is a property graph, when we think about the security review process, risk assessment, like all of those things can now be associated with these nodes. And so if you, for example, at Snowflake, we have a control plane, we have a data plane, and you can start to know all of the things that have ever been described about that control plane and that data plane and all of the things that's existed. So you get this really rich view of what developers think that they're building. And you're using that to help developers do a better job of telling you what, what you think they're building. So a lot of what we use it for today in practice is to autocomplete parts of the threat model, right? We say, hey, you're drawing this, this thing, you know, these other elements are probably nearby. Oh, you've named it this, you know, it's actually used this correct canonical name for this thing. You know what I mean? And um, we use that. Yeah. So I think this is phenomenal, right? I mean, this is like the ideal state that a lot of teams want to get to, but it's really, really hard to implement. So it's amazing that you guys have implemented it already. Now, one of the more tactical challenges, forget about even automation. Let's just say somebody was doing this manually. Let's just say if it was feasible. Now, the more tactical challenge that I've heard several people talk about is when to actually do that threat model, when to actually have the devs go through that exercise, because you mentioned, you know, for every new feature, they have to do that. But right. what does the feature actually mean? Because a lot of times it's PRs, like is PR visual feature, or are you talking about brand new projects, brand new things that the dev teams are building? What about some UI change that a developer is just fixing this, that have yeah. to do with this whole exercise? Or 
how do you make the decision on when to trigger this exercise? So every single change, every single commit has evidence of security review. Bottom line. Now the question is, is what is the security review which is required? And so exactly your point, we take some extreme positions, some maxims. Every consult is a failure. That means we failed to put information somewhere and deflect a question that came to us. And you could say every threat model is a failure. It's a failure for us to have invented the secure default that precluded the need for us to do that. So we have a very specific idea of when and why you should threat model. So the first thing we do is understand contextually, again, who are you? You person developer, what team are you on? What kind of thing are you trying to build? And what technologies are you going to use to build it? And from this, we can start to estimate, are you in the universe we know about? Or are you outside of the universe we know about? And our whole game is to say, this is what you're doing. These are the security requirements. What is our confidence in the total set of security requirements? What's your ability to meet them? And what is the residual risk? So there can be a case, let's say, where there are no security requirements or we have very low confidence in the security requirements. Then what we're saying is you must be doing something new, which means we need to figure out design-specific security requirements, right? Now we're going to go through the value creation process of figuring out what you're doing here, how to make it safe, and then we're going to store that value back in the first two parts. We're going to understand how to ask a better question in the risk assessment or how to know which technology we need to build. Because in some cases, it's just going to remain risky and we need to know every time but we're going to get better at systematically describing what you as a developer are going to do about it. And so we threat model when the risk is high and we don't know what the security requirements are. And this is the worst case scenario. And what we say here is you need to treat this like solid gold. If you went to threat model, and this is a struggle for teams, you know, you're never always winning this battle, but we're, the whole loop here is, is that we have machinery that will help you describe how everything trends toward low risk. And so long as it is low risk, you won't threat model it. You won't involve us and you can just ship it, right? But we all have to go in eyes wide open around what that means to be low risk and what that bar is. So right, for us to get in front of every change, there's a lot of rapid deselection. And for certain teams, we have specific customized rapid risk assessment that helps them really decide on a per change for that team. Uh, because we find that that level of team specific customization is required for these sorts of programs to succeed. That makes sense. Okay, so you're doing rapid deselection of what goes through that high touch, high right. exercise of threat modeling. But a lot of that, a uh, lot of the changes should already be, you know, quote unquote, securely aligned with adoption of best practices, guardrails, what have you. Now, let's talk about additional data that you collect in this product security contextual, you know, data warehouse. So you got threat model data, you've got edge data, connectivity data, you got this sort of the architecture diagram. What next? So as developers are writing code, merging code, deploying code, right. you, I'm guessing you've got a bunch of different tooling, not just to find vulnerabilities and find problems, but also you know, adoption of security frameworks, secure frameworks, security systems, secret vault, what have you. Are you also collecting all of these data points in there or not? Yes. So I'm sure there's some things in there we may not be collecting, but by large, you know, it may sound strange, but we literally ingest the source code into Snowflake. It's not like we have to do that to query the, the source code, but there's a reason we do. So in terms of like the source code and everything associated with that, we consider that as a data model. We ask questions of at all times. As it concerns vulnerabilities, and why I'm sort of hesitating slightly is to disambiguate from what we already ingest. For example, we're already ingesting 
every single asset from every single cloud provider. We're already ingesting the APIs of every SaaS that we deal with. One of the things that I didn't say out loud about security data lake is this premise is I don't know anything about these cloud APIs because I never called them. All I know is my data is in the database and that's how I interact with all of these cloud services. So something I coach my team on it sometimes I have to remind myself is like sometimes you have to state what to you is the obvious. But like in this data lake or data warehouse world, everything is ingested. And like when you integrate a vendor, it's a data ingestion job. It's not a vendor integration unless it's a data ingestion job. And in fact, that is one of the advantages it confers is that everybody is just a data model. And if I need to swap you tomorrow, none of my automation is dependent upon you. I run all of my automation built on my data models. And every vendor that I talk to, I'm telling them transparently, like, I'm just going to ingest you. You're just going to be another data source to me. And I need you to provide, expose these things to me, model the data this way, or help us get it modeled in that way. So I guess it's easy for me to take for granted that everything is being ingested. So what do you do with that? What we do with that varies, right? So for cloud data that we're ingesting, CloudTrail, uh, AWS config, the very practical things we do with that are what I'll call is right invariance, right? Everyone wants to be able to express their invariance in different ways and different times. So I would like no one to write any Terraform that opens, let's say, let's take a classic example opens a port publicly on the internet. Sure, we'll write send grep rules that look for that, but I'm also going to want to write detections that do that, right? And all of my detections are predicated on data in the data warehouse. So I'm going to have, you know, let's not over glorify it. It's SQL on a cron, right? I'm going to have a SQL cron job that goes and scans the entirety of all of my infrastructure all day, every day, looking for, did anybody open 22 on the internet? Did anybody open 22 on the internet, right? I sort of say this is a great opportunity for me to talk about why the having all of this information about what you thought the developer built helps you. Yeah, because what a lot of threat detection teams are doing are writing detections like, gosh, I hope no one opens port 22 on the internet. But that is like so far away from what these individual developers are doing on a change-by-change basis. Like the probability that they'll expose 22 is low. The probability that they'll expose 28 is high because, you know what I mean, you're, you're not looking for that and you don't know what you're looking for. So one thing we spend a lot of time on Snowflake is, okay, for high-risk projects, we're super good at that. And we bring detection in, we embed for the duration of the project, like we write all these great detections. But there's this question of like, well, how do I write detections at scale? And how could I just, for example, assert with high degree of confidence, which ports should be open or closed, or even which network flows should exist? And a big use case came for how do you automate threat detection, right? You can automate a huge set of threat detections by taking in this property graph. And at least today we can address this use case of network traffic should not flow in directions that are not specified by the property graph. And you can generate up the set of detections against, I'm forgetting what we call the network flow logs, but anyway, VPC flow logs to say whether or not that's occurred, right? Like that's something that you can easily do today. And now what we're trying to figure out is how do we extend the risk assessment and threat modeling process to start to get a little bit more intelligence around, you're going to deploy it on this compute instance, or you essentially now want to get to the point where you can infer what the port level expectations were. We're not really asking people to give us all of that information right now. But as you start to get them used to drawing this diagram and you giving them helpful suggestions and short questions that they answer, and you think about it in your mind as a property graph that we can keep adding more properties to. And the more properties, and now what this kind of builds to is, we want to compare what they told us to what they deployed. And essentially, I want the set of properties that I compare between those two things to be one-to-one. So something I'm commonly looking at is what we said, is I'm writing detections that look for ports that are open. 
I want to be able to know whether or not I expected those ports to be open and write those kinds of detections preventatively. Right. So this is, I'm guessing that that data set is, is really, really rich, very useful for you know almost every function within the security organization. Correct. How about folks that are outside of security, whether it's a leadership, you know, maybe security leadership or engineering leadership or even engineering management, what types of data and things do you expose to them? This is such a great question. And this is part of a journey that Snowflake's on it. I love my partners and my coworkers at Snowflake for many reasons. And one of them is, is actually my take on this is, this is an observability problem. It's actually not a security problem at all. And I don't actually care about getting any of this data. If you operated a production service, and we do, you already care about getting this data. And so actually, today I tell this story about a security team that has this massive data apparatus, but actually I want to drive that to zero. I want to just be a data consumer. And I think the great observability program can deliver on all these things. Now, it's a large scope. And today we already have a lot of wins. For example, we were ingesting EC2 instance and then vending that back to people. We don't do that anymore because we don't... We're not the main consumer of EC2 instance data. So, you know, we already partner and we already make these wins of transitioning back to engineering. You should bring that data in. You should be the main owner of it because we don't want to have shadow data. You know what I mean? And also we don't want to vend you your data. So I, I think Snowflake has been in a unique position to kind of figure those things out where the security team had the means, which was unique to get into this data thing and create this parallel thing. But I think we've tried to grow up and have the maturity to realize like, okay, some of this you want and some of this you don't. You want to do the leadership and influence thing where you say, hey, I think it's better for Snowflake if we think about this as an observability problem. And the least of which is how many people are ingesting that API and how much is that costing you and how many times are you going to run into that limit? And by the way, how many times am I storing the same data? Like you don't want to make kind of unforced errors like that. That makes sense. Do you also leverage this data set to build some sort of like a, a risk posture or a communicate KPIs? I think you mentioned early on. Absolutely. As that you want to run security with science, not just as an art, how do you convert this data into actual scientific measures or KPIs or metrics that you can yeah. use to influence? There's two ways we do it. So today we have a, what we would call live dashboards and we model them for CIS because there's lots of regulatory bodies who appreciate you describing your program a lot of those axes. So there are live dashboards for every aspect of CIS. And I don't think this is maybe you I think the completeness is maybe unique in the industry, but it's not, you know, CIS 18 application security. Okay, great. This is where we talk about our role management program. Like lots of people have a role management dashboard, right? Uh, but what we have is for all of their domains, modeled live dashboard 24-7. And when we go to the audit, we don't show them the snapshot. Like we pull it up in Snowflake and we show them. So at a base case, all of this stuff, inventory, how are we calculating whether or not we have long coverage, agent coverage. Like that's because we have the data in Snowflake. We calculate is tenable everywhere. We calculate the population of servers that exist. We diff that against the number of servers that tenable tells us is installed on. We figure out if there's any deltas. And if there are, it's just there in the dashboard. And when we show it to the auditors and it's it's not good, then we're sad and we're incentivized to fix that. You know what I mean? So it just fundamentally, it's every dashboard we show and every piece of evidence we create is generated off of that Snowflake data. And you can easily manifest that into a set of CIS dashboards. Now I'd say, well, that's that's great. CIS is good. You should be able to do that in your sleep. So then what's the next level? Well, what we think about now is how do we quantitatively analyze these things? How do we, and I'm not going to say that like, oh, there's a major database component to the quantitative risk analysis piece, but what is there is like, okay, when we think about a risk scenario, that is an entity, which you know lives in a database and is a first class thing. When we go off and do the forecast, I don't, I haven't implemented any magic in Snowflake that does my 
fair forecasting for me, but we keep that data, right? So in that way, at some point, we'll figure out how to power quantitative risk analysis, the actual forecasting of that on Snowflake. It's not like a goal I have today. I'm extremely happy that I'm here talking to you about Snowflake doing quantitative forecasting, you know, and reporting up on that. Like that is a massive achievement. I think lots of people have automated parts of that. Like I'll come to that later. So really the concrete answer to your question is all of our regulatory reporting is powered out of Snowflake. And when we think about our metrics, we think about many of the same metrics everybody does. How is our SLA compliance with vulnerability management? What does our exposure look like in terms of active administrative users, active administrator sessions? How does our exposure look in terms of users with privileged roles? And I think the difference between what we do and many other people do is that we can trivially answer those questions and we can repeatably answer those questions through dashboards. Yeah, that's pretty powerful, right? Like since you already have that data in a single place, any new metric that you want to calculate, it's basically a SQL query away without having right. to worry about different sources. The sources of data might change over a period of time, but then your reporting will continue to work. Now, Jacob, this has been a, an amazing conversation. I believe you mentioned there is going to be some sort of an announcement on this topic at one of the upcoming Snowflake conferences. Yeah, so Snowflake Summit is coming up next week. So if anyone attends, I'll be giving a talk called Introducing the Application Security Data Lake. A lot of the things we cover here, but we'll get into some more concrete use cases and just how to think about this as a more structured system. Thank you so much, Jacob. That is all the time we have. This has been such an amazing conversation. I'm more and more excited about seeing a future where we have broader adoption of uh, similar data warehouses, similar systems of record where all security relevant metadata comes together and we can make sense of it, make more intelligent decisions based on risk. Thank you so much for your time here. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Future of Application Security. If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.